You are listening to Climate Tech Stories and The Average Joe. Come get excited about the incredible work going on to protect and preserve our planet. And listen to the human stories behind the climate tech movement. Each episode, Joe McDonald, founder of Tim, the renewable energy marketplace, talks with leaders, investors, generators, and businesses who are putting their heart and soul into creating a positive future for all of us. So I'm super excited to be joined by Charlie Cook today, the founder of Right Charge. And looking at your website, Right Charge is a way to sort your electric home charging while saving money, which obviously sounds like a good value proposition these days. So welcome. Great to have you. Thank you, Jay. Great to be here. Yeah. And look, I think it's always just super helpful to understand from a basic point, like what does Right Charge do? What's the story? What's the mission behind the company today? Right Charge today is all about making that transition to an electric car as easy as possible for drivers. There's some barriers that we've identified that are quite prevalent, particularly around the home charging point. And a lot of discussion focuses on the public charging challenges. And they are, you know, they're definitely things that have room for improvement. But I think what doesn't get seen quite so much in the media and elsewhere is the challenges that drivers often have when it comes to simply just understanding how to set up their home as best as possible so that when they're charging their car at home, which is 70-80% of EV charging happens at home, so that's fundamentally the most important place to get things right. But we want to make sure that they're getting the right equipment, the right product, because not all charge points are the same, and it is important to get the right one for you. And also want to make sure that they are at least aware of the bill savings and actually carbon savings that can come as a result of switching to the right home energy tariff as well. So those two missions, those two objectives are our focus right now. And then we have a bigger vision to take those homeowners on a on a journey to decarbonize through other technologies in the home. Um, but we can explore that later. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll get into all the who owns the consumer at the end of the line, because I'm sure that's super interesting to see how you see that unfolding over the next few years. But taking a step back, I think you trained as a civil engineer, but how did you get from where you were when you were training uh, at university through to then starting a you know, home charging kind of company. Like everyone's journey, especially into electricity, sometimes is a little bit of a weird one because it's not something <laughs> that I certainly didn't know, you know, when the light switch has turned, how the light bulb comes on before I journeyed into this space. But yeah, super sure. interesting to understand that from your perspective. For sure. I think um, there's a Steve Jobs quote, isn't there, about how when you look back, you can always join the dots really easily. Yeah. But then if you were to sort of go back to the beginning and try and forecast that, you would never, d- d- yeah, you'd d- d- never yeah, see suddenly. that. It's a straight line now if we look back on your... <laughs> Precisely, okay, yeah. Okay. And it, it seems like a straight line, but it definitely wasn't. So, yeah, trained as a civil engineer, as you said. I studied engineering at Nottingham University. Um, I got lucky, I suppose, to a certain extent, because I just happened to decide I wanted to study abroad. I um, applied to three different universities. I applied to uh, Vancouver, Florida, and Melbourne. Uh, and my grades were good enough to get my third choice. <laughs> so I ended up going to Melbourne, which in hindsight, definitely would pick out those three if I had the choice again. And What's different about the Australian system is that um, you can be really quite flexible with Mm. what you study within a stream. So we're very rigid in the UK. You study a quite specific subject and then it pretty much that set for three years, four Mm. years. In Australia, it was like, well, actually, you know, if you want to pick and mix these almost quite random subjects, feel free to. So I'd watched The Inconvenient Truth, you know, the Al Gore documentary. Uh, and this was 2012, so I just got to Australia and watched that documentary. And that was 
a wow moment. This is a problem <laughs> and a pretty massive one. And no one seems to be really taking it seriously enough. And then as a result of that, I think I was then like, oh, okay, well, I can study the science of climate change whilst I'm here in Australia. And actually, I can also start studying like the energy system and the electricity system. And that was it. I just did a few modules, you know, in those subjects. And, and since then now we're, what, 12 years, 11 years later. Um, that's just been the focus of you know, my life since since then. Was there something about having the engineering background that in the way that you were learning about energy markets just seemed to be more and more fascinating? I, I personally came from a legal background, uh, learning about environmental law, but I really didn't have an understanding of, on what electrons are and how does the system work and the infrastructure that supports it. That's been a big learning curve for me. Did you kind of come in because you had the base knowledge from a more scientific background to apply it and start to see, well, these are problems that genuinely can be solved. And, mm, yeah, and I can understand how you might try and solve them. I certainly think that because it was quite evident that the energy space itself was a huge part of the climate change challenge and solution. Mm. And the fact that that, yeah, probably did very much appeal to the engineer mm. myself and the scientist in myself. And I remember learning about the energy system and I had no idea that all the power we generate in a single second has to be consumed in that same second. I've never even considered that, you know, you can't just generate power, store it in a big way and then use it later. And then I think that particular fact about the electricity system then gets you into, as you will know well, like a lot of nerdy stuff mm. about how do you constantly make sure that supply <clears throat> and demand are matched? How do you then look at opportunities to store electricity in other ways? And it is this like this Pandora's box of, challenges and opportunities in terms of just optimizing this whole system with the mission behind it of decarbonization i think that's like really exciting anyway you know to dive into that and realize there's just so much to work on i do remember thinking i could spend my career on this like this is mm. this is enough to just spend the rest of my career looking at this stuff so yeah definitely you know the engineering opportunity is interesting when you look at your company today it's consumer focus right so mm. Do you ever find that the complexity, but also the ability as a founder to understand that complexity can be lost and actually not the most sort of appropriate way to communicate the value propositions you're trying to give to your consumers, right? I presume you can't educate every single person you do business with on how the energy markets work and this is how we actually improve sure. things and this is our educational cycle and behavioral change must be massive. So sure. how did you start thinking about how to translate that and solving a problem for an actual person? That's a great question. And effectively, my octopus energy experience, I, I, I got lucky there in a way. I studied civil engineering. I'd gone out to Geneva for a couple of years to work on the Large Hadron Collider as, a, as an engineer. Wanted at that time to get into renewables. And so I came back to the UK and did a, did a business degree at Imperial and right throughout that year where I was at Imperial, I think my mind was much more on the big picture. How do we finance big solar deployments and offshore wind and onshore wind and, and all of this stuff? And so I don't think looking back, I had the same understanding of the sort of consumer side of the market as I do now. And the change was definitely working at Octopus. And, and I'm sorry, I mentioned I got lucky. It was just because I, I happened to have a contact who's now the CEO of Octopus Electric Vehicles, Fiona Howarth, and we had a coffee and I needed an internship. And she was like, I've just started at this company called Octopus. Do you want to come and do two months? So that was kind of how that journey began. And that experience 
was like an education in how to build propositions for customers, how to describe opportunities and benefits as clearly as possible. And I suppose right charge is a combination of those two things. It's like we've got a kind of mission, which is very scientific and engineering based, which is how do we reduce emissions and how do we create a EV charging infrastructure that is like better suited for the network. But what we talk to drivers about every day is, is pretty much none of those things. It's like, what are the benefits for you? How do we make this experience really easy? How do we reduce your bills? That kind of thing. Interesting. And have you seen many changes or momentum shifts, especially looking at the last few years of effectively an energy crisis and bills and I think everyone becoming more aware of what's going on and potentially what they need to do. Has that helped the business? What do you think the longer term impacts might be also for what you're focusing on following the last few years? I suppose like there's two, probably been two trends in parallel over the last say 18 months, 24 months. And that's been in general, the population becoming a lot more interested in you know electricity because all of a sudden it's costing you an absolute fortune every month but i also think if you're looking at it from the ev market perspective evs are now being sold much more into the mainstream so for us as a business i would actually say that our messaging has actually become even more simplified and even further away from the technicalities of things because all of a sudden now we're catering for that mainstream customer who probably the majority of them at the end of the day are primarily interested with how do I just get the right thing, get it on my wall as easy as possible and pay the best price. If you look at other parts of the home energy space, then I think particularly solar has seen a huge spike because of the cost of electricity prices. So maybe it's impacting like different parts of the industry in different ways. When you think of now, especially a home becoming its own energy plant of some sorts, You've got rooftop solar, battery storage, wall chargers. You've now got electric vehicles as part of that. Where do you see the future of, let's say, call it home ownership from an energy standpoint? You know, you've got someone installing a solar and a battery and some sort of application that might monitor and control that and optimize that. You've got Tesla who look to install the battery charger might also provide the car you've got the electric car maker is the future of home energy going to be consumer focus is it going to be led by BMW by Tesla by traditional energy companies aggregate apps new businesses like yourself like how do you see that home ownership because I imagine there's a lot of competition and it's somewhat fragmented in the approach yeah hugely fragmented when you start to put different technologies into the home and the question as to how do you sort of manage those all from a central system, if you like, when, you know, you've got your, your charge point from one company, your solar is probably different business, your, your, your batteries are different manufacturer. There, there's a big opportunity, I think, for businesses to pull that together mm. so that the management of those systems can be centralized. The interoperability of those things is going to be a, a really interesting and messy experience and space I imagine you know can you have a effectively like a home energy management system or hub that is designed to be interoperable with as many Mm. systems as possible so that someone can control their whole home from a single device I think you know you've clearly got businesses that are angling to be that hub Mm. um, and there's probably a lot of value there as well to own that space When you look at where we are in the UK, but particularly globally, the rate at which we are just installing these technologies is not fast enough. Mm. So that's why I'm more interested right now in 
how can we just make it as attractive and easy as possible for homeowners just to install the technologies in the first place? Because we've got 7% of UK rooftops have solar PV. There's about, I think, 300,000 charge points installed in the UK, but there's 16 million homes that have driveways. So we're right at the thin end of the wedge just on deployment. Mm. And if you were going to pick a challenge to accelerate, personally, I believe, how do we accelerate deployment before how do we best optimize a whole load of assets in a nerdy person's home right now? (laughs) Uh, That's very true, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. It's the nerds. It's people like, well, certainly me, that's the ones doing this initial adoption as well. And when you think about, let's say, crossing that chasm to mainstream adoption, because I think the value proposition in terms of the savings and the benefits are there. Mm. But what are some of the blockers that you're seeing, right? Why are we still at that thin end of the wedge at the moment? Yeah, that's, I mean, that is the million dollar question. And like, you don't have to answer it now. Not for, that. <laughs> Not for our whole audience. No, but no, it'd be interesting to see, you know. No, no, it's a really good question. It's the question to ask because. Like, why are more people not installing solar, particularly when for the vast majority of people it does stack up financially? I mean, mm. why are you know, people adopting heat pumps slowly? I think evidently these technologies, particularly heat pumps, are at the earlier stage of their development cycle and the awareness of them is relatively low amongst the general population as well. But, you know, solar in particular, it's just... you. Sort of, if you looked at it from a really zoomed out perspective, you'd really expect more people to be adopting it because it just makes so much sense. So, figuring out what those barriers are to people is is so important. We've done a lot of research into it, and I mean, some of them are, are more obvious. Simply being able to spend five, ten, sometimes fifteen thousand pounds on a solar mm. or battery system is a lot of money for most people up front. Financing that system right now is a little bit tougher because of higher interest rates and uncertainties and challenges with are you going to be in that home for the five to ten year payback period that is required to get your money back and then start reaping the benefits or if you're going to move what does that look like and are you going to recoup your investment those sort of questions personally i think one of the biggest challenges that we have in the space is if you ask anyone on the street where you buy a sofa from they'd probably name three or four brands very quickly that are very well known and very well trusted. Yep. If you go and ask someone, where do you buy a solar rooftop service from? The awareness of brands that solve uh, solve that problem is very low. So I, I just feel like we lack big players in the market that are making big noises about what they do and that are trusted by consumers. And that's you know that brings us on a little bit to our own strategy, which is that there's this very rapid deployment of electric vehicles going on right now and the ev itself is definitely this like launch pad for consumers to start thinking in much more detail about home energy Mm. and can we as a business be an actor in the market that takes those drivers in initially to support them with the charge point and tariff and give them a really good experience and build trust through that experience and then can we build a relationship with that customer and give them valuable information so that they start to trust our own experience on the the subject of home energy and take them on a journey then to actually okay well we can support you in the same way as we did with your charge point we can support you with solar and battery and eventually heat pumps and if you just simply look at like the growth curves of what we're expecting rooftop how we're expecting rooftop solar to grow right now versus how many homes will have charge points over the next five ten years the charge point installation rate is going to be much higher Mm. so if you can kind of tap into that and upgrade them to solar then I think you could have a pretty significant impact 
on that growth curve for rooftop solar, I think, you know, has the potential to double the rate of deployment of solar if you use the EV as the point of uh, first contact. Yeah, similar to how we're talking about fragmented approach of installations and ownership and touch points actually providing the customer, the end user with a really good experience that they can trust for something that they then right now have a need for, which is they bought an EV and they actually have to look at installing home charge point. You do obviously have an opportunity then to show them that this is a good trusted experience. Right. And it's quite interesting. I've, I've seen lots of actually horror stories coming from the solar side of things mm. because it was so fragmented. There mm. wasn't much regulation um, around the building standards. You know, even some of my family have suffered from poor installation of, of solar. But that is not the case in nearly any conversation I've had around the EV side. So that makes a lot of sense. And I think just touching, it's an interesting one on financing because that must be also a huge barrier, right? A socioeconomic barrier as well, which is so important. Something we're really passionate about, Tem, is to make it accessible for all, you know, to leave no one behind in the transition. The transition yep. can't just be good for a few people mm. and even could allow for a huge disruptive shift in the balance of power as well. If uh, someone who lives at home, has the control much more about how they use, what they use, the price they pay, takes a huge amount of power away from the current centralized, for example, trading desks and big energy companies, etc. But to enable that, that financing is, is such a sticking point. We're going on a bit of a tangent here, but I was speaking with the founder of a company that's relooking at how mortgages are done. And they're saying, why are we lending against someone who we have no idea what they're going to be doing for the next 30 years rather than potentially against the asset value of the house directly. So why don't we take a mortgage position against the house and the property and really understand the surveying, really understand house values and properties. And therefore we take the loan out, but then if someone moves on, then we can transfer that because it's a similar thing with ownership of the installations you're putting in. If you're looking at a 10, 15 year payback, but you can't say you're in the house for that long, and the leasing companies or the financing companies are then saying, well, we don't know exactly who's going to be paying this bill. It seems like there's an opportunity, again, to say, well, the house itself is what you're improving and making a more valuable asset yeah. through this. And the house will be there for 15 years, even that person isn't. Mm. And potentially rethinking that financing route must be, I imagine there's companies out there already looking at this and trying to do this. So I suppose what sort of conversations we've been having are, are not hugely dissimilar to that idea around considering the solar as an asset on a building because you look at the banks who are ultimately financing the mortgages, they have an incentive mm. to be supporting their customers to increase the um, EPC rating of the home. And doing that with technologies, like renewable technologies is, a, is obviously one of the tools in their in their toolbox. I think banks have a big role to play in making it more accessible for homeowners and ultimately I suppose everything you can do to bring down the interest rate on these assets will help enormously. One of the challenges they have is that when you look at the solar market in the UK there's there's no player with more than 5% of the market. Mm. So it's it's incredibly fragmented and deploying capital to the consumer as a bank, if you've got a great offer on, you know, solar financing, it's it's quite difficult when you've you know, you've got hundreds of players in the market that you've got to ultimately mm. work through uh, to get that into the hands of the consumer. And a large part of the market is owned by SME, small scale electrical contractors, 
who just don't really have the tools available to them to be like building brilliant consumer journeys to go and get financing at the same time as getting a quote for their install. And I, you know, I think that for a lot of them would just be a, a huge rabbit hole and headache that they'd probably rather avoid. So again, this is where we think we might be able to help in the market in some ways because we're an aggregator and we build the buying journey. So for the charge point, you get your quote via us, you pay via us, just like, you know, if you're a traveler, renting a house with a host on Airbnb, you go through the whole process on on Airbnb. On Right Charge, you go through the whole process to buy on, on our website and interact with the installer. So it's actually well within our reach to integrate a, you know, like a finance journey within that process. So it could be something really interesting that we could potentially do to, to bring to the market. You can see this is the problem when you put two energy geeks in a room. <laughs> <laughs> We could go on about this for the next couple of hours. Absolutely. I want to I zoom back out because something I'm super passionate about as, I guess, class as an entrepreneur, which in itself I cringe at, mm-hmm. but how you got yourself into position to start a company. We'll definitely touch on some of the, the lowlights as well, right? Because I think the journey is much about the failure as, as the success. And I certainly have learned far more from listening to other people talk about how they went through those moments. But actually... Can you elaborate a little bit more about why right charge, why the timing, why you suddenly felt at that point after, you know, your education and the learning and energy markets that now was the time to start a business. And I also find it interesting you've mentioned luck a couple of times. And mm. I can never tell because luck can play a huge part, you know, when you're trying to compete at the top end. There's a lot of evidence that shows luck is hugely important again. Mm. But a lot of it is also hard work. Um, so sometimes people will be little bit humble by saying they were lucky but talk me through just a little bit more about that journey to founding right charge and that first six 12 months of of that process as well yeah yeah sure um well probably like a lot of people that are interested in the idea of entrepreneurship and starting your own business i had that in my mind since i was really young i've i've told this story elsewhere but my family are small business owners so i grew up with that you know kind of around me and um Clearly, I suppose, looking back, pretty influenced by that. And I remember I remember this recently. I remember when I was something like 11 or 12, I promised myself I would never work for anyone else. <laughs> and then, I but, already feel bad for your parents. <laughs> but by the age of I was 16, I had a job at B&Q and Subway. Oh, nice. So I was like, oh, okay, I've already, uh, sold, out already sold out to the corporate world. <laughs> um, but I, maybe that gives you a little insight into my mind when I was a kid. I just, yeah. for some reason, I was just like, you know, obsessed with this idea and, Richard Branson was one of my childhood heroes. I just loved the idea of like building something yourself and, and being the boss basically when I was a kid. So as, I think as a result of that, I've gone through life thinking about, you know, in the background, always looking at opportunities where businesses, you know, or, or I could start a business. And I did you know, the classic like few things when I was younger with selling stuff on eBay and starting a, a pet sitting business and that kind of thing when I was really young. But I didn't do, I didn't really do anything interesting uh, or serious until I got to that point at Octopus. And I think the difference was that Octopus taught me how to, well, I watched many times over us as a team launching products into the Mm. market and like all of the thinking that goes around that with market opportunity, getting the right product, getting the right messaging, doing the launch, da 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 da, like all of those things that you do. And I think that then helped me to, when I then did think that, okay, I actually, I think there's a, a need for this in the market, I could then visualize pretty easily what the first 12 months would look like in terms of launching it. And I don't think I'd ever had that previously. So that 
gave me the conviction, I think, to be like, actually, I, I think I could do this and, and it's worth a shot. So I, got, I went part time at Octopus for the first 12 months of the business, which was super helpful because I just didn't need to, you know, go out and raise capital just to pay the rent, etc. And I just did everything incredibly scrappy, you know, paid very little money really to get like MVPs off the ground. And as a result, I didn't raise money until almost 12 months after the business was generating revenue. So the business generated revenue from, from launch in September 2019. And then I raised uh, £100,000 in August 2020, which meant that I could go full time on the business. That's amazing. It's an interesting, especially considering the current market dynamic for startups. And I'm not saying the, day, the, the, the days are done of raising $5 million on a pitch deck, but you took a slightly different approach with your view being almost finding the product market fit really doesn't cost that much. Mm. And as you said, I think somewhere else, if you don't know exactly where you're going to spend the money, why are you raising it? Mm. Perhaps even before the trend, especially during a boom few years, you seem to have taken the approach of actually it's product market fit first. Mm. It's slightly more bootstrapped first. And then the capital can come when you're actually ready to grow and scale. Yeah. Looking back, do you think that was the right route still? For, is that still the same? If you could start all over again, is that still the same, yeah, same route you would take? And I'm sure because obviously very you've got speed, question. but uh, clearly you mm. actually you were able and forced to really think about the customer and really prove that someone's willing to buy it mm. before suddenly having 10, 20 people working for you, burning through the cash and <laughs> starting to rush and change potentially priorities that you might have had. So. I'd be super intrigued to see what, what your yeah, view is on I, that. I think that is like a fascinating debate mm. because I, I really don't think there's a right answer there. Some people will say raise as much as you possibly can and go as fast as you can with a big team and big burn, etc. I think it just depends on a lot of things. I think it depends a little bit perhaps on the sort of market that you're innovating in and the sort of product you're bringing to market. If you're reinventing the wheel on a lot of fronts, then having a big team is really not going to help you, I don't think, because most people are specialists and they know how to do what they do. And if you don't have a clear directive to give a marketer or a partnerships manager or something like that, they're not going to be very effective at all. And if, if a lot of what you need to do is just learn, I think you can do that pretty cheap. And there's no need to just burn through loads of capital. However, if you're coming into the market that's very well established and you're looking to you know grab a big slice of that already established market with something that's perhaps like a, a tweak on what already exists, then maybe you're able to put a plan in place that is more concrete very quickly and mm. deploy that capital quickly. If I were to do it again, I probably would raise more money sooner, but not ridiculous amounts. I think like you know, I raised 100,000 in that summer of 2020. If I were to start the same business going back to 2020 again, maybe a million would have been a the right amount to raise, but not 10 million. But I think a first time founder in today's market is going to struggle to raise 10 million <laughs> with one year of uh, business under the belt anyway, yeah. unless they're in, you know, AI, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe, maybe energy seems to be finally compared to certainly it was for us. I remember raising our first 250k at Lime Jump took six months. Right. And everyone said this, this market is too complex. It's right. Overloaded with incumbents and and now you see startups raise 70 million. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so like uh, in, in the energy space, uh, hopefully, and, and hopefully it's good to see you know, capital coming into. So, you know, yeah. I think someone said the other day, 
something X number of billion, 14 billion went into getting your groceries mm, to mm. be delivered 17 minutes quicker on mm, average, mm. whereas less than 1 billion went into climate tech. Mm. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that, yeah. So, But hopefully <laughs> we're now seeing you know the other side of that. Um, I think working cl- climate slash energy and AI seem to be the ones to, to, uh, that are in vogue at the moment. So yeah, it's good for us. Do you remember your first sort of feeling of seeing that initial product market fit, you know, that, whether it was that first transaction or, and what was the journey to that point? Was it yeah, for banging sure. your head against the wall for a long time or, you know, did it actually fall into place quite quickly? It all felt like it fell into place quite quickly at the beginning. And again, maybe it was just because of like the experience I'd had at Octopus, especially because I was like specifically working in this field. So I had all the contacts, et cetera, to go to market very quickly. And then, yeah, that first moment was probably, I managed to kind of pair up with a very popular YouTube channel in the electric vehicle space. And they put out a video which was totally featuring Right Charge for 15 minutes. Um, and that, that got, was it, I think, 100,000 views, which these days I get even more. But there was this experience of seeing the inquiries come through on a spreadsheet, you know, like 10 times more than we than I'd ever had on another day. And you probably know what those moments are like when something really clicks and something really works and people start streaming through. And we just had another one of those this morning, actually, for something totally different. We just opened up this thing we'd launched on Friday and we were like, okay, <laughs> better uh, make sure this is all watertight because um, people are streaming through. So th- those moments are amazing, aren't they? You know, like that's it's good it problems to have. Yeah, it's yeah. good problems to have. But yeah. can you think about a real low light, you know, chasm of despair, you know, what was that moment? What did you take from it? Yeah. How did you come through it? Um, I think maybe the best way to describe that is, and again, you're, you're really going to know this, I'm sure, as a business owner, but it's so hard to separate your emotional state from how the business is doing. And I'm generally quite obsessed with growth rate. So if month on month our growth rate looks good, then I'm generally pretty relaxed as a person. Um, and I'll you know be enjoying my weekends and my evenings <laughs> that kind of thing. If if our growth rate is stalling for two or three months, it starts to really impact me. I get like anxious about that and mind's racing. What do we need to do? What's going wrong? Where do we focus? That kind of thing. Worst case is when that happens when you're running out of money, <laughs> and then you're like, okay, this is like a double whammy and. A circle of emotional death, I'd call that one. <laughs> yeah, chapter five in the entrepreneurial journey, yeah. the circle of emotional death. Um, uh, yeah, it's a roller coaster. Uh, you know, it's a cliche, but it's so incredibly true. And you get through those times. And the positive perspective I put on those, usually retrospectively, is that it does drive you to solve the problem. I mean, yes, it's not a lovely experience working. 12, 13, 14 hours a day for however many weeks you need to do that, like to get it fixed. But I mean, at the end of the day, if you didn't have that like uh, emotional connection to the problem, then you probably wouldn't fix it and you probably won't ultimately be successful. So I don't know, maybe it's, maybe that's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's super interesting. You know, everyone's gone through it. I, I think realizing, allowing it to wash over a little bit more so I can have clarity of thought has become mm. the most important priority because I can't contain it. Not everyone knows, but even if you're not on a laptop working, solving a problem 14 hours a day mm. as a founder, I think I wrote a post about this recently, you're thinking about it. You are always. So always. controlling 
the thinking process and yeah. to ensure that you're able to have clarity of thought, make a few really important strategic decisions. Yeah. For me has been what I've been working on the most. Tying my emotional state to the business and even my self-worth mm-hmm. to the business. Mm-hmm. It's something I, I work on, but I almost don't think I'll ever be able to to move on from that. Mm. And I think that's hopefully what helps, right? Because you, you've got to sacrifice something in this space to, to try and change not just the world, but, you know, even just your own life with starting a business. Yeah. So I think just riding that wave and letting it wash over me a little bit more and then just looking for those few moments where I'm like, ah, now I, I need to care. Those eight fires will burn. Mm, for sure. Or those metrics, you know, it's not the end of the world, but what is the key insight here and how do yeah. I drive that with the team has become super important. You, ha- you have to get better at taming your mind, don't you, basically, um, and not letting it overwhelm you. One thing, I mean, I mentioned off air, we, we had our first child, my uh, girlfriend and I had our first child in January and mm. had two weeks off for paternity. Time off, by the way, really can be one of the best things, I think, for if you're experiencing like anxiety and overwhelm, you take a day or two off, take a Friday off or a Monday, have a long weekend or a week if you need it. And you come back and you're just like, you can be a totally different and more effective person. So, you know, hustle culture is obviously a very toxic way of looking at these problems. And I, I do genuinely believe that actually the better way of dealing it is a bit of time off. But um, sometimes, yeah, most of the time. Anyway, in, in that two week period, I remember there was some stuff, there was some stuff going on in the background that I was trying to ignore. And I remember just thinking like, actually, I do actually right now, I feel quite like lucky to have these problems. I mean, it's what I've always wanted is to have this business and now I have these problems that I'm working on, but I'd much rather that than not have the company and, uh, you know, be working in a job somewhere. Else. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's helped me to reframe them a little bit more positively. Like, you know, I, these are, these are the things I chose and actually I'm quite lucky to have them anyway. It's also interesting listening to your, your story and your journey. When you think about those key points that seem to have impacted you, it's, going to more of a university of life moment where you weren't told exactly what to do. Clearly you had that underlying drive to want to do your own thing, but you weren't jumping into that with unknown. You were learning and learning the processes. I, I really hope there's a way that we can get the same lesson that you learn in Octopus and I've learned in startups. Like mm. The best way, if you want to know how to be a good first-time founder, well, join another founder early on and learn mm-hmm. how a startup fails definitely or is successful yeah because you also start realizing the mystique and the curtain gets it's like wizard of oz it yeah. drops and you're like this isn't that special they're just making stuff up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> making stuff up taking risks having yeah. a vision and 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 having conviction and working hard so i hope that to our listeners as well it's super helpful to hear exactly how you've taken that approach it's a good lesson super excited for for the future and what's happening right i mean yeah the market and the timing almost couldn't be better so look before we finish we ask two just simple questions completely unrelated hopefully to entrepreneurship but um what piece of technology are you using at the moment you just think is awesome mm-hmm. or like you know you couldn't live without you can't say yet the apple three thousand five hundred dollar headset <laughs> that means you don't have to work at your laptop anymore okay what piece of technology as boring as this is like i think my favorite thing i own is probably my airpods Oh yeah, <laughs> just like the freedom it gives you to take calls and walk around and get outside. Hold the little one. Hold the little one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's quite good at drowning out background noise. I used to have wired earphones for a long time, and it just meant that, like, physically, I was tethered to the laptop basically for a lot of calls. And now the AirPods mean I can 
I can just live my life a bit more mobile and you know, take phone calls on cycle rides and stuff like that. So it's actually quite good for efficiency. Well, there we go. And it's also perfectly looped into our second question, which is, do you have a favorite song or podcast on repeat at the moment? I actually really like, for a bit of inspiration, either the Tim Ferriss show, I find can be very good. And there's a particularly good one with the founder of uh, Duolingo. Oh, cool. He was really good. And then every now and again as well, Stephen Bartlett, if you get a good one, then um, can be quite inspirational. Probably the Tim Ferriss is uh, is my pick. Amazing. If I, I, I think I say this most podcast, but Acquired for me is just... Interesting. I took so much learning from hearing the stories and the and the journeys of all of these companies. Like ah. Over four hours or three hours rather than 20 minutes has been fascinating for me. So I haven't to, heard you that. You have to check it out. I'll check yeah. it out. Yeah, it's awesome. On my AirPods. On your AirPods, on the move, <laughs> hopefully with the little one. Um, but look, thank you so much, Charlie, for joining us. It's been absolutely awesome. It's been um, great. Our paths will definitely cross again in, in the energy space for sure. But um, otherwise, good luck and uh, take care. Thanks, Joe. Take care, man. Thank you very much.